So the hypothyroidism can be secondary to autoimmune damage, and it can occur independently from too much iodine. The simplest way to think of it is that high-dose iodine blocks iodine. When there's overwhelming amounts, there's so much there that iodide spontaneously forms iodine, and that's when we start seeing toxicology. The book talks about how you can possibly reverse thyroid disease, and that's starting 50 to 100 micrograms. So people who are at typical iodine status, they can be at negative iodine balance where they're eliminating iodine from their thyroid and making their thyroid hungry. That can happen in a week or two. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Friends, I have been dying to release this episode ever since Dr. Alan Christensen told me probably maybe a year and a half ago now that he would be releasing a new book all about the thyroid, about reversing hypothyroidism, and that the key to that might actually be reducing iodine intake. Friends, this is honestly a shocker to me, to a lot of people. I think a lot of us often think that adding iodine is the key when really it might be the problem. Ever since he said that, and then when I was reading his book, I feel like people keep asking me about hypothyroidism. And the first thing I've said is you might want to consider reducing your iodine intake. And I was so eager to have this episode that I could refer listeners to so that they could learn why. So I am just so happy that this is now happening. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash iodine. Those show notes will have a complete transcript, so definitely check that out. So a few giveaways for you guys. We will be doing a signed book giveaway for the Thyroid Reset Diet. That will be on my Instagram. Just go and find the post about this episode and it will be there. There will be another giveaway in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something I love. All right, without further ado... Please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Dr. Alan Christensen. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited and honored about the conversation that I'm about to have. This is a moment for me because this is with a repeat guest, and this guest was actually the premier first episode of this show ever, and here we are 70-something episodes later, so this is really special. This man has a really special place in my heart. The topic of today's episode is huge. It is about a condition or an issue that affects so many people, myself included. I personally have been diagnosed with hypothyroidism and that has been quite a journey trying to figure it out. And for listeners, I think it's going to really fly in the face of what a lot of people might Think about hypothyroidism, particularly how a nutrient called iodine relates to that. Dr. Alan Christensen, who I am here with today, he has a new book coming out called The Thyroid Reset Diet, Reverse Hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's Symptoms with a Proven Iodine Balancing Plan. And listeners, I read this book and it completely blew my mind. It was one of those books where 
I read it and I was like, oh my goodness, I just, I need to tell everybody about this since reading it. And before this conversation, now every time people post in my groups about hypothyroidism, iodine, things like that, I'm like, um, you might want to read this book when it comes out because it might just change your mind about a lot of things. So we will dive deep, deep into all of that. But Dr. Alan Christensen, thank you so much for being here. Hey, Melanie. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really glad to be here and have some time with you. So a little bit about Dr. Christensen. You guys are probably pretty familiar, but for those who are not, he is a naturopathic endocrinologist and he focuses on thyroid function, specifically Hashimoto's, hypothyroidism, and Graves' disease. He's been all over the place. You've might have seen him on Dr. Oz, The Doctors, The Today Show, and he does have a lot of other books as well, New York Times bestsellers. So The Adrenal Reset Diet, The Metabolism Reset Diet, which on this show, I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but the first episode was about The Metabolism Reset Diet, and we dive deep into liver health in that episode, which is really, really great. But coming back to today's topic, which is the thyroid, before we dive into that, Would you like to tell listeners, for those who aren't familiar, a little bit about your personal history? What brought you to your interest in focusing on the thyroid, writing this book today? And I'm really dying to know if you had like an epiphany about iodine or or when iodine became a focus with all of that. Yeah, yeah. Great questions. Personal history, you know, super quick version. I had cerebral palsy and epilepsy, some complications from that really hit me hard in my toddler years, early school years for the, the bulk of it. And there were some lasting orthopedic issues that have stuck with me, but I was an unhealthy kid. I gained a ton of weight and I was, I don't know, driven by desperation to read health books. And I realized by the time I was age 12 that, you know, your diet had a huge impact upon your health and that your health was just like everything to the quality of your life. So I was like a convert in this world, you know, and I don't know, as I say, when most kids are playing video games, we didn't have video games back when I was 12, but <laughs> in terms of like that stage of life. But yeah, I've been in this stuff for a long time, wanted to go into medicine and do it in a way in which I could utilize the power of nutrition and lifestyle. And in my training, I don't know, I really connected with people that had thyroid disease. I saw that, you know, I knew what a big deal my weight was and how that affected me and lifestyle helped it. I saw those with thyroid disease and lifestyle was not enough. You know, they needed more than that. And I saw radically conflicting views of the advice they were given from the natural world and the conventional world. And, you know, some things were not safe. Some things could be effective. It was hit or miss. And I really wanted to pull that together and make sense of it for them. So that was how I got focused on thyroid disease. And that was in the mid, mid nineties. Iodine epiphany. Definitely there was one. Yeah, I guess two big ones. For quite some time, I'd been aware of iodine, but, you know, hadn't given it much more thought. There were some anecdotal stories in natural medicine about iodine being a great antiseptic, expectorant, you know, thing that used in various ways. I had a patient who developed a rare form of thyroid disease for his age. And it's almost, when it does happen, it almost always occurs after someone gets a mega dose of iodine, like from a cardiac medicine or from a contrast agent. He had neither, but he informed me that he was iodine deficient. And he told me about this iodine challenge test he had done. And that, that opened my eyes to this emerging new world that was called the Iodine Project. And I, I read that and it was fascinating. Many were pushing for high-dose iodine. And in reading it, 
it also pushed me back to go deeper into the conventional literature about iodine and what was known. So I've always had interest in that. I guess always that would have been about probably 2002 or three when I got deep in that iodine project. And it was within probably the last half a dozen years or so where I started seeing more data, not just that a whopping amount of iodine was dangerous, but that amounts even that one could easily get inadvertently could be relevant. So yeah, then one study jumped out at me as really launching the epiphany about how this could also be an opportunity to reverse thyroid disease. Yeah, this is so huge because for listeners, I think typically the idea surrounding iodine is that people who have thyroid issues probably need iodine. Like it's a lack of iodine that's the issue. And so there are all these like protocols and dosing things where you dose with iodine and reading your book. I mean, it was almost like reading like a drama or something. I was like, it's crazy that there's all this literature out there about iodine and the effects of like low iodine diets on the thyroid. And it's actually the opposite of what a lot of people think. Quick question about you. So you never yourself, you never had any thyroid issues yourself? I have not. Nice. (laughs) That's wonderful. So my personal history with iodine. So I got diagnosed with hypothyroidism. I started doing research and I did come across this idea of dosing with iodine to help it. And my realization was that I had been paleo for quite a while. I hadn't been eating processed foods. I had cut out salt. So I wasn't eating iodized salt, although although you talk in your book about iodine and other forms of salt. And I wasn't eating seafood. So I was like, I probably have no iodine in me. That was my thought. And so I decided to do the the Lugol's protocol that a lot of people do where they dose with this, this iodine. And it was the only time in my life, because I experiment with a lot of supplements, it was the only time where I tried something and the response that I had scared me so much that I was like, I'm never touching this ever again. My eyes turned bloodshot red. I think that was the main thing, but it was so, I was like, this is really scary. And I, and I wasn't sure what was going on. So I just kind of never touched it again and didn't really think about it as much. So with all of that being said, why is there this idea that most of us with thyroid issues need iodine? You talk about how like the work with breast cancer. The iodine, there's, there's really, there's this body of evidence that we've got that goes back a hundred years. It's probably the most studied nutrient on the planet. We know just tons about it. We've known that it relates to thyroid disease. We've looked at how it affects populations when it's fortified in the salt. So we've just studied the heck out of it. In the last, well, since like about 2000, 2002, late, late 98, some doctors in functional medicine proposed that pretty much all that was wrong and we need much higher amounts. And the, the, the fundamental glitch is one that is really understandable. So nutrients can work in ways as vital elements of human physiology. The way that the organic world works is that there's not a whole lot of molecules that are in use. I think about it like a small box of Legos. There's just, there's just not that many different things in biochemistry. You know, all of life uses a small list of substances. So a lot of things that are nutrients can do have other effects that are not related to the role as nutrients. You know, case in point, niacin. It's an essential B vitamin for a lot of mitochondrial functions. And by happenstance, the molecule tends to plug up a pathway called HMG coreductase by which your liver manufactures cholesterol. So yeah, so high dose niacin can lower cholesterol. But that doesn't mean that high cholesterol is a niacin deficiency. 
So a doctor saw papers showing that high-dose iodine could lower the symptoms of fibrocystic breast disease. And these papers were using iodine in the order of about 5,000 micrograms per day. Just to put some quick context, the World Health Organization has argued that between 50 and 200 micrograms per day is safest for most people for long-term exposure. Those that are not prone to thyroid disease may episodically be exposed to 1,100 micrograms per day without complication short-term. And so this protocol was using 5,000 micrograms. And about two-thirds of the women had lower symptoms of the pain of fibrocystic breast disease when they took these higher doses of iodine. And so the, the point where the doctor, start, the first little glitch from which all this was born was the assumption that they had a nutritional requirement for iodine and that they benefited because this satisfied their nutritional needs for it. You know, another, another example of this is I'm looking out a window, I'm seeing some thorny plants and I could walk outside and get a thorn in my skin and possibly get infected. You know, that infection could be effectively treated likely with topical iodine. However, that wouldn't mean that my infection was proof of iodine deficiency, right? So that was the, that was the glitch that he started from. And from there, he built a large, large body of thoughts that were internally plausible. They all made sense. But the analogy is like a house of cards. The, the fundamental premises were just not accurate. A little more depth on just fibrocystic breast disease. So what we now know, iodine has pumps in the body that concentrate it. And the main one is in the thyroid, but there's all, there also can be an iodine pump that concentrates it in breast tissue. And the purpose for that is the amounts of iodine in the blood are generally small. And so to have enough iodine in breast milk to supply a baby's nutritional needs, the breast tissue would have to concentrate above the blood level. And this is called NIS. It's a sodium iodide symporter. Yeah, so it's an appropriate thing. However, what we find out is that there's a continuum of how much NIS expression, how, how aggressively the breast cells pump iodine. And the continuum is between non-lactating breast tissue, lactating breast tissue, fibrocystic breast disease, and then culminating in breast cancer. And there's basically a steady line. So women who are not lactating and don't have fibrocystic disease or breast cancer don't have an active iodine pump. But fibrocystic breast disease, the pump is really active. And that's part of what happens is that there's, there's fluid retention, there's buildup intracellularly of fluids and sodium. And that's where some of the pain comes in from. So iodine actually shuts down this pump. We can talk more about that. And so it ends up just taking down the fluid pressure short term. But that doesn't mean that they needed it. And yeah, the highest concentrations occur with breast cancer. Wow. So to clarify, you just said it shuts down the pump. So it's not like they're filling up their iodine stores in the breast. They're actually shutting it down. Exactly. They're shutting it down. This is this paradox to where nutrients in their excess can do the opposite of what they can do in their normal states. So iodine, when there's too much of it, your body needs to prevent it from overloading the system. You know, thyroid hormones so strongly stimulate your heart that if you had a ton of thyroid hormones spill into your blood, your heart could give out. And our ancestors that had no protective mechanism and had massive thyroid surges, well, they're not our ancestors because they didn't survive and reproduce very well. So when we get a lot of iodine, rather than having your thyroid just go crazy and pour out a lot of hormone, your thyroid shuts off. And that's true for iodine pumps elsewhere. So a big flood of iodine shuts down the iodine pump. 
You talked in the book about the wolf checkoff effect. Is that related to the thyroid specifically, or is that just a general effect? No, it is. And that's specifically this sodium iodide symporter shutting down in response to high dose iodine. So high dose iodine turns things off because the body sees it as, you know, a, a major, major issue. Well, I've never thought of it this way before, but the simplest way to think of it is that high dose iodine blocks iodine. <laughs> wow. That's so ironic. <laughs> so as a population, you just spoke about, we do need iodine, obviously. So what is the role of iodine in the thyroid and why is it unique compared to other nutrients so far as how it's being used and its safe ranges? Yeah. So it's unique. One thing that's pretty odd is that it just has one role. You know, there's this one place where iodine is essential. We can't say that about any other nutrient. You know, you know all about zinc and calcium, magnesium. They do a lot of things. Iodine, we know of one essential role for it. Also, it's the way it's concentrated. That's, that's unique. And the ranges, as far as deficiency effects, if we were to go back to 1991, there was a tragic scenario in the world. There was 112 nations that were categorized as severely iodine deficient. And at the time, organizations estimated that upwards of a billion people were on the planet that didn't have a chance to have their brains develop properly. So thyroid function is essential for brain development in the early years. And with too little iodine, that doesn't work optimally. So somewhere around one out of seven people back then, they didn't have the full potential of their brain function. And with developmental milestones, those opportunities, those doors close. You know, when the opportunity passes, you can't really make up for that. So it was, just, it was a tragic thing. And there was just major negative consequences from that. So efforts were rounded up. Organizations were formed, NGOs, government organizations, and they sought to eradicate the problem. And between 92 and 2014, they eradicated the problem. The number of nations that were categorized as severely iodine deficient went from 112 to zero, which was totally cool. And it was like one of the biggest wins in public health. But the nations that were then categorized as at risk for thyroid disease due to iodine excess, that went from zero to 52. So that was the shift that happened the other way. So like the deficient countries in 92, that included the U.S. as well? No. What type of countries? Yeah, by and large. So funny thing, the U.S. had pockets of iodine deficiency, and they were called the goiter belts. And we'd have to go back to the turn of the last century for then. Iodine intake is conditional upon your local food and your local soil. And if you're somewhere where you're coastal, generally you're consuming seafood. Funny thing, but we actually breathe some in from the air as well. So if you're coastal, you might get enough by just breathing it. They've shown that. Like areas that have a lot of kelp beds, people have higher iodine than they would otherwise just from breathing it. <laughs> so yeah, we're good at not getting deficient. But if you're coastal, you'll often get enough. If you're inland, there's these, period, there's these areas of rainfall, which if you're on the seaside of a mountain, there's more rainfall closer in, but less on the far areas. So whether your rainfall is more so water that came up from the oceans or not, the area, the amount in the soils can vary drastically, even, even if you're at similar distances from the coast. Then the other factor is fresh water dilutes iodine in the soil. So we've got these great lakes that are massive bodies of fresh water, and they're quite a ways away from the ocean. And surrounding them has been historic goiter belts. You know, if you're, we talk about the benefits of local food, well, back when that's all you had was local food. And so what your soil was, good or bad, is what your health was. 
So in those areas, there were higher rates of neck swelling. And this became a problem when they were recruiting soldiers for World War I. They would do basic exams for health, like scoliosis and goiter checks. And too many were not acceptable to be sent off for duty because too many had goiters. So that's when this came to public health attention. Like, hey, what? We need soldiers. We've got to fix this. So that's, that's why the whole thing about the little girl with the umbrella, Morton Salt, so fortifying. And there never was a national regulation for that. It was a voluntary process. Some states went into it, some didn't. And the funny thing, there was a huge controversy in medicine at the time. You know, many doctors were outraged at the idea. They were seeing higher rates of thyroid disease after it started. The rate of goiter went down about 10-fold or more from 1914 to about 1930. And that was a big success. But autoimmune disease, the rate of autoimmune disease amongst women in their 30s and their 40s, uh, in the decades following salt fortification, that went up by 26 times. Wow. You talked in the book, you like went through a lot of the changes that you just mentioned where the goiter went down, but the autoimmune went up. Is there any other correlational factor that could account for that? Or do you really think it's the iodine, at least with something like Hashimoto's? Well, that's been looked at globally. And for a little while, there was thought to be a glitch. It was strongly attributed to salt fortification. But then one big piece of outlying data was the UK. Because the UK had autoimmune thyroid disease go up at a similar time frame, but they didn't have salt fortification until decades later. But then it was uncovered that they preceded the US in iodine fortification of cattle feed. And the data that we have about expected iodine intake in the population was a strong parallel. So they didn't add it to the salt, but they added so much iodine to cattle feed. And so many people were consuming dairy products that it's expected they had a similar increase of iodine at the same time frame. So basically, if you are a human being today in a country with iodized salt, I guess everything's always possible, but is it very, very unlikely that you're iodine deficient? Just to expand upon that, there's being iodine deficient and there's having it become relevant. So for example, there's a paper that I'm going to be talking about shortly. It's been shown that vegans have higher rates of being low in iodine. And so that's been put out as a public health concern. But the, the, the second level thought that now some people are writing editorials about is, hey, vegans have the lowest rates of thyroid disease. We need to rethink what's iodine deficient and what's not. <laughs> so, yeah, so you can be low in that. And is that a bad thing on paper? Well, it really matters the outcome and the overall risk of thyroid disease. So there have been some really good studies that have broken down the U.S. into subpopulations for age, gender, and ethnicity. And there certainly are some groups to where you'll see 7 to 12% that are considered what's below optimal for iodine. But those groups are not the ones seeing higher rates of thyroid disease. We also have, like in this, the classic demographic of women, 30s, 40s, and 50s, pretty much steady throughout ethnicities. Many of those groups, 30 to 40%, are considered severely at risk for thyroid disease due to iodine excess. And that's where we are seeing more thyroid disease. So the prevailing idea still today, at least in the, the blogospheres and the internet rabbit holes and, you know, where people are doing these at home, they think they have hypothyroidism or they're diagnosed with it and they read, you know, take iodine. Is that still based on what we talked about at the beginning with where there was this idea that iodine basically fixed the breast disease? Well, in that blogosphere, I guess there's like those statements which are coming from the nutritional circles, like nutritionists, registered dietitians, 
And those things are coming more from like the popular health world. And registered dietitians, nutritionists, I just saw a blog before getting on this call with you in which nutritionists is talking about this topic. And they're saying, yeah, in theory, that could be a factor, but it's really not relevant in the modern world. And if anything, it's the opposite. So, so no, I'm more so seeing it in like the, the popular health, natural health space, whatever you want to call that. The blog that you read, she was saying that iodine is not a problem. Well, most, most things that I see that are written by registered dietitians or nutritionists are, are saying that, that, yes, in theory, low iodine can cause thyroid disease, but it's not a relevant cause at the present time. And I wouldn't say no one could ever be low because we, we need it. It is essential. And I've seen it happen. There's one, one memorable case of a young boy who attended a personal growth event. And the speaker at the time was endorsing a, a, a raw foods only diet. And this, this boy was, I don't know, 19, 20. And I remember what a zealot and I'm, you know, I can be an extremist already, but when I was in my early twenties, you know, a young boy, everything's just times 10. You just take it over the top. Oh, this is it. I'll go with this all the way. You know? So, so he was, he was taught that raw foods were the best foods and like cruciferous vegetables were the best foods. So he's like, all right, well, I'm going to base my diet on broccoli smoothies and that's it. And he did. He went through about like four to six pounds of raw broccoli with water per day. And that was his diet. So he was brought to me six months later because he had a goiter. <laughs> he was consuming nothing else, like no salt, nothing. So yeah, those things can happen but they're not, they're not typical scenarios. Yeah. Well, that is one thing that is talked about, especially a lot in the paleo sphere is goitrogens and foods that act like that. So, I mean, it's almost ironic because after reading the thyroid reset diet, it seems a lot of people might actually benefit from having goitrogen foods to reduce. In his case, so goitrogens are relevant to the context. So in places, if he were consuming any other food, one, one food by itself, like, like any kind of a fruit or a vegetable or any, any kind of a low iodine food, it would have been the same outcome. I think it was not that relevant, even that it was happened to be a goitrogenic food. Maybe that worsened it a little bit, but he was just consuming almost no iodine. You know, that was the main issue. Like for me, for example, since I did probably go through a period, I mean, it was probably, probably four years of no iodized salt, no seafood. I really don't know where I would have been getting a lot of iodine. So I do wonder at that time what my levels would have been. Since then, I went on a really high seafood <laughs> time. But what else were you eating then? When I was not having seafood? Yeah, during the possible low iodine time. So it was, quote, paleo, so like without seafood. So, so it was like chicken, steak, vegetables, things like that. Not dairy. I wasn't doing dairy. I'm going to forward you the spreadsheet. You'll get a kick out of this, but I've, I've listed out like the content of about 600 foods and I've got some data around that. Almost no food has none. So when I talk about, I probably should qualify that better. So broccoli doesn't have none. It doesn't have much. Animal proteins all have low to moderate amounts. So chicken, steak, you, I don't really consider those relevant because within the, the reasonable range of a diet, you're not going to get too much from those, but you're also not going to get none. And that's true of so many other foods. You know, just, just plain raw vegetables have very little. There are some exceptions to that, like potatoes, for example, the skins to be precise. But yeah, but there's very few foods, that have, few foods that have none. And that's why it's hard to get too low in it. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. 
May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys, and you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Hi, friends. Okay, so I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near infrared for so long. And at the same time, during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution. And guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, 
it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus or SCN in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet. Because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time? That's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love SoulShine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at SoulShine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. Yeah, I saw that about the potato skins. So it, it is because of iodine naturally in the potato skins, not some sort of additive or something. Well, and the tough thing too about iodine in all contexts is that it's capricious. It varies, it fluctuates. So the databases that I used, many would have 60 different analytes that they were averaging. And I looked at not just the averages, you know, the median, but also the, the, the mean and also the highest maximal known sources, the lowest sources, and what the typical spread was like. So in, in cases where, where the goal is to be at a low level to reverse thyroid disease, my objective was to help people avoid the big outliers. So potato skins aren't really always high, but a few samples here and there can be high. So if your goal is to get down below a threshold, those are the kind of things you want to watch. But yeah, that was my mindset that I took into the exercise. Sounds like when I was researching mercury, I was like, oh my goodness. <laughs> It can be all over the place. You could be totally fine or you could be like saturating yourself in mercury and with the different variances and and fish species specifically. So, So going a little bit deeper into iodine itself and how it's working in the thyroid, it blew my mind some of the comparisons you made in the book about the amount of iodine that we actually need, like how big that like actually looks. So like how much iodine do we actually need, like, what does that look like if we could see it? Maybe we can dive into how it actually functions in the thyroid with thyroid hormones and all of that. Well, yeah, to give some quick context, thyroid hormones and iodine, they're both things that are occurring in the world of micrograms. And I've read things about what we can actually visualize and what we can't. And (laughs) micrograms are clearly outside of what we could visualize. So 
<laughs> the mass of a microgram, comparing that to the mass of a paperclip, is a pretty good analogy of comparing the mass of a paperclip to the mass of a cow. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, so a million fold. It's tiny. It's tiny. Yeah, the amounts are small. So that's one microgram. Yeah. So for example, like my current thyroid medication, I think has 10 micrograms of T3. So that's like 10 of those tiny little, well, I guess T3 is. Yeah, yeah. 10 millionths of a paper paper clip. 10 of those tiny little of a paper clip. Okay. Wow. That puts things in perspective. Halfway down, there's a grain of salt. So a grain of salt is about a milligram. A paper clip is about a gram. And a microgram is like a thousandth of a milligram or a millionth of a gram. To refresh for listeners, you said the average daily intake of iodine or the optimal average daily intake, if everything was working the way it should be, was how many micrograms? The World Health Organization has tracked all these populations and how much they consume and how much thyroid disease they get. So in terms of the sweetest spot for the least thyroid disease, that's about 50 to 200 micrograms. The book talks about how you can possibly reverse thyroid disease, and that's starting below 100, so 50 to 100. My mind is just trying to like envision this. So when we take in the iodine, so how is it actually used in the thyroid with, is it thyroglobulin? How does the thyroid use iodine to form these hormones and T3 and T4 and what all's happening there? Yeah. So easy thing I think about is a coat hanger. I grew up in Northern Minnesota and most homes had like a mud room. You know, you'd walk in to a spot that Maybe there's the, the washer and dryer, there's a coat rack or something. You, you put your winter clothes there, you take off your boots, you know, and then go into the house. So the coat rack, in this case, we got four hooks in the coat rack. So, so what happens in the holidays when everyone's over is the coat rack gets overloaded. There's coats that are on top of coats and not just on the hooks. The hooks are full already. So thyroglobulin is a coat rack with four hooks and it'll take on these iodine atoms. And you've got the right number of iodine atoms in place, and that's how we form T4 and T3. To be really precise, the molecule itself can store up to 10 or 13 in the proper tyrosol sites, they're called. But in a high iodine state, you can jam as many as 60 iodine atoms on the molecule. And all the ones in the wrong place, they're sources of free radicals. You know, iodine oxidizes, it's highly volatile, and they make the molecule look foreign to your immune system. You know, your body's like, oh, there's a normal coat rack, but I don't know what that big pile is over there with all those things on it. That looks weird. So your immune system sees this protein with all these excessive iodine atoms, and they're all seeping off free radicals, and your immune system does its job and goes after it. And somewhere along the way, it starts mistaking the coat rack itself for this big, nasty pile of coats. And now you're attacking thyroglobulin. And there's an enzyme called thyroid peroxidase that converts iodide, which is the form of iodine in the gut and in circulation, into iodine, which is the form within the thyroid follicles. So that enzyme also gets blamed. So your body starts to attack thyroglobulin, thyroid peroxidase, and now you start damaging the cells, and now the thyroid can't work right. But that's the onset of autoimmune thyroid disease. Oh my goodness. I am loving this. Okay. Some questions. So, so the iodide, which is the form in food, the first form that it's in. So if it's in the bloodstream, does it have to go to the thyroid first? Like why does the body choose to even convert it into iodine 
And why does it stick to the TPO rather than eliminate it at the beginning? So it converts it to iodine, so it sticks. So it becomes more volatile and it's ready to ready, single and ready to mingle. You know, it's, it's there, it's oxidized, it's ready to take on another reaction. So yeah, iodide, whenever we get it from food or even once, it, once it crosses our bloodstream or crosses our gut lining, even if a trace amount of it were iodine, it becomes iodide. And the body can then choose when it wants to make it into iodine. And I imagine like the image of a, of a scientist with a, a big, thick face shield and like massive leather gloves and the long tongs holding the smoldering cauldron, right? So that's, that's kind of how we handle iodine in our bodies. We only make just the right amounts when we wanted to do something. Now, there can be iodine excess, and that's what we're talking about to where it makes those proteins damaged. But then there can be iodine toxicology. So if you've ever seen like a historical medicine bottle of iodine, they had skull and crossbones on those. And tragic thing, but one of the leading causes of suicide in years past was iodine ingestion. So what the threshold is, is that within a certain range of exposure in the body, iodine is only formed inside compartments, like inside the thyroid. When there's overwhelming amounts, there's so much there that iodide spontaneously forms iodine, even without a pump. And that's when we start seeing out-and-out toxicology, you know, kidney damage and liver failure and things along those lines. So that pump that you were talking about in the beginning in the breast, is its purpose to convert iodide to iodine? Is that what it does? Yes, it's concentrating it and also converting it. And then thyroid peroxidase is also helping to convert it and make it so it's ready to stick onto thyroglobulin. So do you know, like, like the Lugol's iodine, the liquid that people will do the dosing with, is that straight iodine or is it iodide as well? There's a little bit of iodine that's in there. To be really precise, it would depend upon the age and the stability of the product, but it's somewhere around 5%. But the part that freaks me out about that stuff is, I mentioned how 1,100 micrograms is like the upper limit before anyone gets toxic and 200 micrograms is like the daily limit for those prone to thyroid disease where they get toxic. So a drop of Lugol's is 50,000 micrograms. <laughs> it's it's yeah, not a, not a dropper full, but a drop. Yes. <laughs> no wonder my eyes went bloodshot red. Oh my goodness. It was never made for internal use. It's completely unsafe that way. Wow. That is crazy. Okay. So going back to the, the actual iodine in the thyroid and attaching to the TPO. So TPO is helping it attach to thyroglobulin to be precise. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Yeah. So with iodine in the thyroid, TPO helping it attached to thyroglobulin. So many words here. Oh, and for listeners, there will be a full transcript of this episode at melanieavalon.com slash iodine. So don't worry, you can check out the transcript to read through all of this. So in the thyroid is the thinking by this iodine paradigm, because a lot of people have Hashimoto's, which is the autoimmune form of hypothyroidism. Oh, and I probably should, I've just been assuming listeners are following along, but if they're not, hypothyroidism is an underactive thyroid. Hashimoto's is the autoimmune version of that. And hyperthyroidism is an overactive thyroid. With Hashimoto's, what percent, well, I guess what does the literature say? And what do you think as far as what percent of people with hypothyroidism do have the autoimmune version of Hashimoto's? That's a really good question. So the iodine, I mentioned how it causes autoimmune disease. 
It can also, even if there weren't an autoimmune response, it slows the thyroid by the Wolf-Chaikoff effect. And in the past, we thought that was like a massive dose shut it down for a while. Now we know that a little excess can shut it down for a long time. So yeah, even, even regular, so the hypothyroidism can be secondary to autoimmune damage and it can occur independently from too much iodine. So how much of hypothyroidism is caused by Hashimoto's? Well, the difficulty is that we've got different categories of diagnoses in medicine. So some diagnoses are just, here's the thing, like high blood pressure or broken leg. Other diagnoses are, here's a bunch of symptoms that usually cluster together. We call that a syndrome. And then some diagnoses are based upon histology, based upon cell analysis. So Hashimoto's technically is a histologic diagnosis. So what that means is the only way you can say someone does not have Hashimoto's is by removing and mincing and analyzing every little nook and cranny of their thyroid. Many people with Hashimoto's do not have positive thyroid antibodies. In fact, the bizarre thing that we now know is that the thyroid antibodies are not even causal for Hashimoto's. They're, they're often present, but they're not the exact mechanisms of the immune attack. Kind of like smoke and fire. You know, you can have like a smoldering coals and no smoke, or you can have like a little tiny fire on wet leaves and massive amounts of smoke. So yeah, they're not even causal. Estimates are that 95, 97% of hypothyroidism is caused by Hashimoto's. But because you can rule in Hashimoto's by the presence of antibodies, but you can't rule out Hashimoto's by the absence of antibodies. If a person does not have antibodies, the immune system can still attack the thyroid without antibodies. Measurable thyroid antibodies, yes. What role do antibodies play in the the messaging of the immune system to attack the thyroid? So specifically, the antithyroid globulin and antithyroid peroxidase, they're often present and it is part of, the, part of the projected mechanism, but it's probably mediated through other compounds such as cytokines as far as the actual damage. This is so interesting because a lot of people think with Hashimoto's and with the autoimmune thyroid issues that, you know, a lot of people say that it's an autoimmune condition based on diet. Like I, very rarely have I, I don't think, well, until I read your book, did I see anything about iodine being the, the cause here, but just to repaint the picture. So it's basically that the excess of iodine is attaching to the thyroglobulin and then the body is, you know, misident- misidentifying it as a, a threat and starting an autoimmune response. Yeah. And in terms of what causes thyroid disease, there was one big paper that basically summed up, this is written the last few years. They said, look, we now know that there's three irrefutable causes of thyroid disease only. Everything else we've talked about may have some small contribution. It may have some relevance. The data is inconsistent. So the three irrefutable causes, the first two are called existential because we can't change those. And the first two are age and gender. And the third one is, is iodine. That's the one irrefutable cause that we can address. When we look at dietary drivers of thyroid disease in medical literature, there's, there's about three papers on food categories. And um, probably if, we, if you throw in other dietary interventions, there's about five papers. If we talk about celiac and thyroid overlap, there's about a dozen and a half papers. And if we talk about iodine, there's about 34,000 papers. So that, that's just the, the level of this evidence. How is age or gender a cause of thyroid disease? Well, age is the simplest one. It's just that, you know, let's say that you roll the dice and you get three sixes and that's like 
I don't know how this works, but Snake Eyes is bad. I know in some kind of gambling. So let's say that that's what Snake Eyes is. The more, the more times you roll the dice, the more your odds are of eventually getting Snake Eyes. So that's, that's the whole thing with age. You know, the, whatever, whatever set of things that go wrong, the more years you live, just another chance, another year you've got in which that bad thing could happen. You know, those random events combine themselves. And that's true for so many conditions. Like it, it broke, basically. Yeah, it's not say something is unlikely to happen, but if you give it enough time, eventually it's going to happen. You know, so that's or it's more probable given a long enough period of time. So that's the role of age. It's not even a wear and tear phenomenon. It's more so just accumulated risk. Gender. There's three theories about that. One is that it seems that most of the genes that affect iodine tolerance. We'll talk more about that. Most of the genes that affect iodine tolerance are on the X chromosome. So women have two X chromosomes, uh, guys have one. So with men, if they have those traits, there's a greater chance those traits can be recessive. So that's one. And then the other things are more relevant about, oh, I'm sorry, one other factor is relevant about autoimmunity in general. And it's thought that the androgenic to estrogenic hormone ratio has some roles to play in the immune errors that give rise to autoimmunity. And we think this is relevant to pregnancy. So pregnant women have to be able to not attack something foreign when they're carrying a baby. And so when they move out of that mode, that's where they can attack things that are not foreign. And the last theory also ties into the pregnancy thing, and that's about fetal microchimerism. It's thought that wayward cells from a baby that cross the placenta and end up somewhere in mom's body, they may start the whole autoimmune process initially, which then becomes generalized to any other parts of the body that seem suspicious. So with the age and gender, it's it's things like immune errors and potential, I don't know, genetic. Yeah. X-linked things. Yeah. X-linked differences, hormonal differences, and then effects from, from pregnancy. So to clarify, so this is thyroid disease. So people who have hypothyroidism, well, I guess we just discussed how maybe most of it might be autoimmune, but I don't know, like a lot of people who they seem to experience low T3 levels, for example, and symptoms of hypothyroidism, can that just come from stress or, you know, like that, like the body slowing down the thyroid for other reasons, not related to iodine and not autoimmunity? For sure. And this would come under the heading of euthyroid sick syndrome. And just what you described. So T3 can run low, other thyroid markers are normal. And the thought is that in some states of, of stress, which can include what we think about as psychological stress, but also physiologic stress, like impaired renal function or acute infectious disease, in states of stress, the body may intentionally slow down the output from the thyroid. And just to imagine the rationale there, if something's not working right, you'd want to be able to take a break. You'd want to not push the system harder. You'd want to downregulate the system. So it's thought that that's generally an adaptive response to the state of high levels of stressors, the, the, that low T3 type syndrome. For people who are on thyroid hormones, and this is something you talk about in the book a lot, is how many people are treated today with thyroid medication. So for listeners, oftentimes the, I feel like the most commonly prescribed is a T4 only approach, but then a lot of people, especially in the, like my world might be on more specific, like compounded T3, T4. They might be on natural desiccated thyroid NDT. So there's a lot of thyroid options out there for medication. And it was kind of dismal stats in your book about how people actually feel. So for those on thyroid medication, how often is it working by the stats? Well, and 
This brings up the other issue that I have brought that I haven't mentioned yet that's important is that thyroid disease is a function of too little hormone being produced, but it's also a function of how the body responds to the thyroid hormones in circulation. And that's, that's another place where iodine is relevant. So that Wolf-Chaikoff effect, it slows the, the mechanisms of thyroid hormone production from the thyroid, but also it slows the ways by which your cells and your mitochondria take up thyroid hormone. So you're running around with the parking brake all the time. And once, once you get that part of the issue, then it makes perfect sense why not everyone would just magically feel perfect once they got some thyroid hormone back in their body from a pill because they were already fighting their own hormone and they're still going to fight the hormone coming from somewhere else the same way. Yeah. What do you see the most in your patients as far as the issues with just, you know, making these thyroid hormones work? Is it more of T4 not converting to T3, of T3 not, you know, working in the body, of just not producing enough? Like, like what do you see the most of that people struggle with? Yeah, the biggest, the biggest factors are first off, just having having an adequate amount of the, the, the building blocks, T4, T3, and T2, and they're all physiologically important. So if someone has all those hormones available and they've got amounts that are reflective of what they would be in healthy populations, if there's issues past that point, it's often a matter of resisting those hormones and iodine's the leading cause of that, or it's a matter of a secondary condition. So there's, I've identified five different disease states that are prevalent in 5% or more of those with thyroid disease. And 84% of people with thyroid disease have at least one of these other disease states. So there's things like atrophic gastritis, there's hyperparathyroidism, there's uh, various types of latent iron depletions. But if one of those things is off, that can it by itself cause symptoms to persist even past the point of thyroid hormone optimization. I know this is a general question, but do you find... I know we've talked about we've talked about this a lot. What are your thoughts on like compounded medication versus NDT as far as how people respond as far as the accuracy of the doses? What are your thoughts on those? Well, you know, it pulls up our microgram world again. So my thought there is that they're hard to make well and thyroid hormones are unstable. They're based on iodine. Iodine's not stable. You know, between 2012 and 2017 with the best technology we have at our disposal, there was 99 recalls for synthetic thyroid medication. You know, they, they can't be made perfectly. And so thankfully, there was a process by which they're analyzed post-production and then recalled. And then, you know, there's legal guidelines. So my concern, of, my concern about the compounded medications is that when was the last recall on compounded thyroid medicine? Well, they've never had any. That's not because they're better. It's because no one is checking. So yeah, that's I, I can't imagine that I can't imagine it would never happen, but just no one ever looks. Because because something like Synthroid, they'd be testing, right? There have been some cases in which people have looked. There was a patient of mine who was seeing another doctor. This is such a sad story, but she called me on a weekend. She was incoherent. And I, I got that she was panicking and her she was like her heart was pounding, she mentioned. I knew the other doctor she'd been recently seeing was a big fan of of compounded thyroid. And I said, look, I think you may be getting an overdose. I encouraged her to, you know, to call 911. I don't know how many years ago that was, but she, last I heard, she spent her remaining decade as on a vegetative state. She barely lived through that scenario. So she was given a compounded medicine, which was not an unreasonable dose. It was a sustained release T3 that the prescription was for 7.5 micrograms. However, it came out of the pharmacy as 7.5 milligrams. 
So yeah, she was in a coma for months and never really regained brain function afterward. Oh my goodness. Okay. Every time I call the pharmacy now, I'm going to be like, make sure it's micrograms. I have no doubt that that's not a common problem, but the idea of it being off by 10%, by 50%, by 80%, that's entirely probable. And there's just no method of analyzing. I've spoken to compounders who have advertised that they do analyze their products. And when I get down to the brass tacks, they do analyze their products for pyrogens and biologic contaminants. So there's no bacteria growing. I'm like, that's cool. How do you guys, do you guys assay the actual post-production hormone content? Well, no, we don't need to do that. Like, I know that's my problem. Oh my goodness. Is this a potential issue with NDT at all? Well, so NDT is a USP regulated medication. It does have to undergo a post-production analysis. And there are legal, legal guidelines for how much variance it can have from batch to batch. And we do get recalls with NDT. And that's because of that whole process. And you know what's so interesting is, because I know that recent recall I feel like happened with one of the big brands. And the ironic thing is, just talking to you right now about it, people probably see that and they think, oh, you know, shouldn't take NDT. There's this huge recall. It could be wrong. When really the takeaway that I'm having now is you probably should be taking that because it's regulated compared to, you know, if you're getting it compounded, there's nobody checking. Like people are probably going to think it's much safer now to get compounded. Well, and there was just a study done not that long ago looking at how much patients' blood levels fluctuate when they're on NDT versus on synthetic T4 only. And this was done by a conservative medical group. They found no differences, that there was no, there was no problems that way. It was not an inferior product as far as the variability from batch to batch or patients' blood levels over periods of time. Are the issues overdosing on the T3 aspect of it compared to T4 since T4 is inactive? Both can be a concern. When, when T4 is overdosed, it's cleared to T3 as it's broken down, but there's a chance to make some of it into reverse T3. So the body normally makes most T4 into reverse T3. We, we, it's just like we have two lungs and two kidneys. We have more than we need. So normally in a healthy system, we make more T4 than we need, and we waste the majority of it. You know, T, reverse T3 is a normal byproduct. So T4, we've got one more backup mechanism if there's too much, but that's, that's to a point, and that doesn't really scale forever. So we can certainly get too much of it as well. There's just so much. Okay, so there, there's that whole aspect, the medication going the route that you propose in the thyroid reset diet and trying a low iodine diet to, you know, address everything. I mean, you, you had one shocking statistic that I wrote down. There was one study that showed a low iodine diet cured 78.3% of patients with Hashis. The TSH went from 14 to 3.18. 3.18. Yeah. 14.1. And that was within three months. And so the bizarre part, Melanie, was that so one, one fascinating takeaway was that pre-diet, they did partition the patients based upon their iodine levels, their iodine excretion levels. And post-diet, post that did not predict who would and would not respond. So the question I get is, should I test my iodine before I do this to see if it'll work or not? I'm like, well, no, because it's not predictive of if it'll work or not. But so of those that didn't respond, so the 78.3%, that what, like, so 28, so 27.7% of people who didn't, didn't respond, they were in two categories. So the biggest category by far was people that they did respond, but they weren't yet normal. They had a starting TSH of 50 to 100, and they were down by 50% or more, but they weren't yet normal within three months. And the last group was a couple, I'm sorry, there was two other groups. The second group, which was a few people, they were not at an iodine target. 
So the iodine levels didn't predict who would get better, but of those who didn't get better, it did predict who wasn't complying or maybe they weren't educated well enough, you know, whatever. But the saying is you got to play to win and they, they weren't playing. <laughs> so they, and then the last group was about half a percent of people whose TSH has never budged and they were on target for their iodine. So it doesn't work for everyone, but it was pretty darn close in those studies. They were people that were not yet on thyroid medication. They had had disease for an average of, of four years. It had been quite a while. But with thyroid medicine, it's more involved. So it is also a matter of the fact that as the thyroid gets better, the medicine has to be adjusted. And there's still the benefits, even for those on thyroid medicine to where they don't see radical changes in their blood level by doing the thyroid reset diet. We see so many stories about symptom improvement. And this comes back to the whole take the body responding better to thyroid hormone. It's really interesting what you said about, you know, it didn't really matter their starting level of iodine as to how they responded. If we are oversaturated in iodine, like how long does it take the body to clear it? Especially if you go on your low iodine diet, what does that timeline look like? Yeah, great question. So a lot of the things we know about low iodine comes from medical procedures. So there's iodine uptake scans and there's iodine ablative treatments. And those are situations in which we want the thyroid to be like a dry sponge that's going to just like suck up all the water that's dropped on it. You know, we want it to be like hungry for iodine. So it takes it up very readily. And what we've seen is that most people with typical ambient levels of iodine, they can actually get, and let me back up one bit more. So you can think about the iodine balance in three categories. You can think about it to where there's enough to where the thyroid is staying steady on its iodine levels, good or bad. There's a lower level to where the amount of iodine is, is, the thyroid is losing iodine. It's like at a negative iodine balance. Then there's a positive balance where there's so much coming in that the amount in the thyroid is increasing past some physiologic state. So people who are at typical status, typical iodine status, they can be at negative iodine balance where they're eliminating iodine from their thyroid and making their thyroid hungry. That can happen in a week or two normally. But there certainly are outliers. I've had people that have been in our programs and courses that they had done things like taken a lot of that Lugols for periods of time, or they had a lot of iodine from contrast or from a medication called amiodarone. And those, there's cases where it might be a matter of months and months and months before they can even just get to a, a balanced state. But yeah, in most, most typical scenarios, it's, it's a few weeks to first reach that state of negative iodine balance. Hi friends, an incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold contamination. 
contamination. David's been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, (laughs) drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof coffee. And it is called Danger Coffee. And friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee and use the coupon code MELANIEAVALON to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10-year decade bulletproof coffee habit. But sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine, and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits The longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the U.S. is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives. Dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. 
I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. Hi friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like a hundred brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hack. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order. So you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste. Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous. And they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. Is it a situation where like you just mentioned people who have done like mega dosing or, or say for some reason you take in a huge amount of iodine at one acute moment, like do you automatically take it all in and it sticks and then you have to deal with it? Or is it a situation where you take like some of it in? So like the difference between like chronic exposure to less compared to like one-time exposure to a huge amount. Yeah. So bolus exposure. And this, this has been studied quite a bit. So there is, there is some 
There's really not much variation in terms of iodine requirements. Like there's no genetic variations where someone needs 10 times as much, but there is variation in how we respond to bolus dose iodine. And this has gotten a little theoretical, but the thought is that we have different traits that were prevalent in human ancestors that were coastal versus those that were deeply inland. So coastal people never had lack of iodine and they occasionally had bolus exposure to iodine. And then inland areas were the opposite. They, they were often trying to do their best to conserve what they had. So we think that that's relevant to some of this. But yeah, bolus exposure, it does also engender eliminative mechanisms through the intestinal tract. So NIS is also active in the gut lining. And to some extent, it does adjust based on iodine needs. So if we're already sufficient, we don't take in quite as much, but that doesn't protect us as much from bolus doses. We absorb about 92 to 94% of oral iodine across our gut lining in normal circumstances. So that, that can change slightly. We can also eliminate a little bit more in our stool and our sweat, but there are limitations. So those are things that change it by just a few percent. So by and large, though, yeah, we get a big bolus dose and we, we mostly have to deal with it. And a lot of that still does end up in the thyroid. So people who are not genetically from a sea-based population ancestry, are they the ones that are more susceptible to being damaged by bolus because their body's like, ooh, save it? They're, exactly. They're so busy sucking it in that an extra just like floods them. They get much more than they need. And then one more point about just the excretion is that the thyroid gets rid of iodine by making thyroid hormone almost exclusively. So it gets rid of just a trace of iodine outside of thyroid hormone called the non-hormonal excretion, but that's, that's a few fractions of a percent. So that's why when the thyroid has a lot, it can't just dump it all out because it's not gonna, it can't make unsafe amounts of thyroid hormone. The body blocks that. So when you're on thyroid medication, giving your thyroid hormones, how does it ever get rid of <laughs> the iodine? That's why medicines change that. And that's why it makes it even more imperative to be thorough about avoiding it when one's trying to correct their thyroid function. Oh my goodness. So I'm sure this is not the route to go, but what if you were on thyroid medication and then you went off your thyroid medication and went on a low iodine diet? Would that make you get rid of it faster? Well, it's possible, but the concern is that, let's say that, let's just for an extreme example, say someone never needed thyroid hormones at all. They were just put on them and they were taking them. Now, to a point, up to about the point of what your body would normally make, you will accommodate that. So to illustrate that example, say, talking about a 100-pound adult menopausal woman for easy math, and her body would make about 77 micrograms of T4 per day. Let's say she's taking 77 micrograms of T4 per day, and she was just given this dose. Well, she's now making none. You know, she would make none to make room for that. And let's say that, that she was on that for six months, you know, and it wouldn't appear to be too much because her body is now making none to make room for that. But if that were discontinued abruptly, her body would aggressively ask for more thyroid hormone because it's about three to six months to get things back in line again. And let's assume her thyroid can work again, that it wasn't suppressed for too long. Her TSH levels will be through the roof. And the signal telling her thyroid to work will be so high and so dramatic that that's harmful to it. That high TSH itself can trigger thyroid disease and trigger thyroid harm. So there certainly are times, and we see this, to where people can have appropriate tapers of their medication, but if it is too fast and too abrupt, it ends up blocking the chance for their thyroid to heal. I'm glad we're having this conversation so I don't do something drastic like be like, well, I never needed to be on thyroid hormones anyway, so <laughs> bye. 
and stop taking iodine and or stop eating iodine and okay okay so listeners work with a practitioner have your thyroid monitored yeah and and i encourage i encourage that so thoroughly when someone's going on the diet because they may well need some changes and if they don't make the change they need they can get too much thyroid but also they can block the chance of their thyroid repairing so when the thyroid starts to work better the, the first change on the panel is the tsh starts to drop and it starts dropping below the range. And that's a sign that, hey, yeah, you now can start tapering with, with your doctor's guidance. My doctor has like played around with my dose a lot. <laughs> and if they ever add more T3, they tell me that it'll be normal if you have, you know, for the first time or so, like heart palpitations, like it might feel like too much at the beginning. But now I'm just thinking like, if it feels like too much at the beginning, would that sort of insinuate that it is too much? Then it's just like the thyroid adjusted to it? Yeah, exactly. And then over time, you start to make less, to, you, you, you duck down to make room for that, so to speak. You're put into a low room with a low ceiling and you get used to walking bent over. But at first, like, hey, this is weird. You know, so that's what's going on inside your body. So iodized salt, especially now that we have this whole idea in our head that we can't quite grasp as far as the size of things, but like iodized salt, which was you know, put forth to quote, solve this iodine deficiency issue. So like how much iodine is in iodized salt compared to a low, medium or high iodine food? Yeah. So in terms of amounts, it's one part per 10,000 of salt is fortified with potassium iodide. Some of that gets lost along the way, but normal, normal daily salt intake in practical terms, you'll end up with about two to 300 micrograms of iodine from, from typical salt. Now, if you're doing something like pink Himalayan salt, that's about three times as high, two to three times as high. So yeah, so some salts have quite a bit. The pink one, and that's not fortified. That's just natural iodine. It's just naturally occurring. And, it, and intuitively, I wouldn't have thought that because it's, a, it's an earth-based salt, not a sea-based salt. But the assays I've read, and I've, and I've talked to manufacturers, are you guys sure about all these decimals and zeros? Are you totally positive? Because this is a lot. And like, oh, yep, this is right. I'm like, okay. I know you talk about the salts in the book, but do you know like like Redmond sea salt? Or it's, well, it's not sea salt. Well, it was an ancient seabed, but... To my memory, that one did also... Either I didn't see an assay on it or it came back high, but I know that I, that I did investigate it and I didn't, did not end up adding it to the list of safe salts. Either there was no data or the data was not good. I bet they would answer. I'm going to send them an email. I just, because that's the salt that historically I've used. And I think a lot of people in this, in my audience probably use. Well, so, so the funny, the funny thing is that the argument for using something besides just plain salt is that you're getting more minerals and you are, but, but you look at the actual amounts. So like potassium is a great case in point. There's potassium in sea salt for sure. Our bodies need three, 4,000 milligrams of potassium per day. If you consume a five, five grams of salt from sea salt, you get about 0.001 milligram of potassium. <laughs> so it doesn't change your day. <laughs> and that, that same thing is true of all the minerals in sea salt with the exception of magnesium. So a normal day's intake of sea salt, you might get an extra 50 milligrams of magnesium. That's not nothing. But, but yeah, other than that, all the other minerals in there, are they're there. But when you say that they're there, there's also all the bad minerals there. You're also getting aluminum and arsenic and gold and mercury. They're present in trace amounts in amounts quite similar to what you find for iron or mag or uh, not magnesium, but selenium or zinc. Just can't win. <laughs> and then the other funny thing is that you look at the culinary circles and all the chefs say that iodized salt tastes bad, that they notice the flavor that it imparts. So all the chefs use kosher salt and actually diamond 
brand kosher salt is by far the favorite of all the all the chefs. Morton's brand kosher salt is good. It has prussate, yellow soda of prussate, which is harmless enough, but some wish to avoid that. But diamond brand sea salt, it's a diamond-shaped crystal. So I'm not an expert in the kitchen, but it apparently has a really good physical effect of how it sticks to things and holds on to things properly. I think you also mentioned like the Celtic brand of light gray salt. Is that a sea salt though? For sure. Yeah. So it is. And they've assayed their products repeatedly and their light gray, which comes in a fine and a coarse ground is basically devoid of iodine. It's got very minimal amounts and they make a lot of other salt products. And that's not true of their other products, but it is true of their light gray sea salt. And there's also Malden's, Malden's sea salt, which is also pretty low. And this is, I've got a crush on this stuff. So yeah, I'm, I'm learning the trick. So here's what chefs do with salt is that they do, they do kosher salt when they're cooking, like to add that to the water, add that to the dishes, but they always intentionally leave a little bit short. And then they do a finishing salt at the final stage of delivery. And so the finishing salt, like Malden's finishing salt, it's these crystals that are, I don't know, probably about like half a centimeter, like quarter of an, up to a quarter of an inch in, in width, like, like a disc, so to speak in their width, and then almost, almost nothing in their, in their depth. So they're these, these like, almost like discs, like, like Frisbees, like little shapes of Frisbee, like, but more like angular shaped. Wait, what type of salt? What is this? Uh, finishing salt, Malden's brand finishing salt. So you sprinkle this on top of things and it's not all that much of a mass of salt, but you get the texture, you get this crunch and you get these bursts of taste from it here and there. And then they've got a smoked version of their finishing salt, which is so insanely good. So yeah, so when I'm cooking, I'm using diamonds salt for cooking. And then I'll do a little sprinkle of the finishing salt. Kieran doesn't like the smoked one as much. I love it, but I'll, I'll sprinkle some of the finishing salt then on the way to the table. And that's just so phenomenal. Yeah, I looked at a picture of it. Oh, that is, I actually saw a new salt at Whole Foods the other day. And I was like, what is this? It was ice salt. Huh? Have you heard of this? Not at all. It just looked really alluring. I just read your book. I was like, well, nope. <laughs> Can't try any new salts. Yeah, it said it was from like ice. I don't know. Ice glaciers somewhere. Huh? I'll let you know. I'll check it out. One more last salt question for you. It's not really thyroid related, but what are your thoughts on salt as far as, I feel like that's another thing where there's people on one side who say, you know, we need to get rid of all like salt, like we don't need salt. And then on the flip side, we have people, especially in the keto world where they're like, oh, we're actually salt deficient. Like we need to be, you know, ramping up the salt. And I'm just like, oh, I don't know. Well, so the simple, the simple thing is that keto, keto diets cause hyponatremia. <laughs> they make you excrete all kinds of minerals, including salt. So on a keto diet, that might be the case. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I have looked at the arguments about salt, salt's role in overall heart disease. It's, it's something that's very true for some, for some people. It's less true for others. The effect size is not nothing, but it is smaller. There, there have been some arguing that everyone's really salt deficient and that's, that's not, that's not congruent with the literature, but, but yeah, for some people it is quite relevant to blood pressure and there can be some effects with excessive amounts on cardiovascular disease for sure, especially in an overall low magnesium context or low magnesium, low potassium context. Yeah. I'm just so fascinated by it because like I said, there's this whole idea where it is linked to blood pressure and heart disease and things like that. Then there's this other narrative saying, oh, it's not involved at all. And maybe we actually need more to prevent that. I'm just like, that's the complete opposite. I've talked to that author in a lot of detail about it and <laughs> not, not come away impressed from the idea. 
<laughs> I'm haunted by this. Okay, so thank you. I'm sorry. Just short answer I would say about that is have have a lot of plant foods in your diet for potassium, magnesium, and you know lots of different food categories, and salt your food to taste reasonably, and you'll you'll come out good. Because the thing I've noticed, and this is just me, but I've gone through periods of higher salt because I was eating not super processed meats, but like deli meats that would have salt in them. And I just noticed that I did seem to adjust to whatever salt intake I was taking. But if I cut out the salt and, you know, don't really add salt, I feel good like that. And then I only crave salt like a little bit compared to if I bring back the salt, then it's like, I feel like I need to have this massive amount of salt every single time. Like I seem to just adjust to whatever. And it, I just feel healthier, not at the higher salt level. There, there is a, there's a threshold for, for sure, but where, where our salt taste is based upon our salt exposure. And they've also shown that above some threshold, salt does correlate with satiety, that saltier things end up making us hungrier. And that's, they put, you know, they, they put, and, and thirstier, of course, which is why they put pretzels out, out at bars. And <laughs> I read a study the other day, I went on a tangent researching umami because normally that is thought to increase appetite. Oh no. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I, I was reading that it actually is the opposite. And I was like, what? No, I have no idea. That's been well studied. Glutamates. That's a fascinating topic. I think, I guess people associate like MSG. So for listeners, definitely get the thyroid reset diet. It has an entire protocol to follow to attempt to reverse your thyroid disease with a low iodine diet. Is this a diet that anybody, you mentioned that you don't need to test your iodine levels beforehand. Could anybody potentially benefit from trying the low iodine diet? Like, is there any reason not to try it if you suspect that you have thyroid issues? Well, there's, there's not. And I wrote it to where it was a pretty healthy diet overall, to where there was no big exclusions that, yeah, you could, you're still covering the bases nutritionally for those reasons. The low iodine diets that were written for medical procedures, they were only meant for use of a week or two. So they just said, you know, only eat this and don't eat like everything. <laughs> They're like very restrictive. And to make it simple for a brief process, I don't blame them. But for a longer period of time, you know, three, six, nine months, then I wanted it to be easier to do and nutritionally complete. And there's two stages to it. So the first one is that reset stage. And that's where you're just working to get your thyroid to work better again. And you're watching its function improve. And then past that point, there's the maintenance stage. So once your thyroid function has gotten better, then you now have more leeway. You've got a certain higher amount of iodine tolerance back. So then I talk about ways you can add in some of the foods you've been avoiding or reducing. One thing that was a really big epiphany for me, I've heard so many times where people talk about they've gone paleo or they've gone vegan or they've gone gluten-free and the thyroid's improved. And I've struggled to find data supporting that are reasons why that would happen. But then as I was looking at what are the popular, the things that are commonly eliminated in those, in those diets, they're often cutting out a lot of the iodine outliers. And I've done some, I did some assays in the book showing like, here's a popular autoimmune paleo menu. Here's a popular vegan menu. And then I put what the actual iodine content would have been from those foods. And in both cases, people could have easily found themselves in a therapeutic level for reversing thyroid disease just based on the iodine. Right. Because some of the big categories were obviously the processed foods, you know, the salt, the dairy. Yeah, the processed grains, like you mentioned, egg yolks. Yeah, that was so fascinating about, about the dough conditioners. And apparently we're not supposed to be using them, but are they still there or something? Well, this is, this is, this is weird. You talked about the testing. Yeah, they've, they've shown that some commercial baked products do list iodized dough conditioners. Some do not. 
But when you assay, you go by the store and buy a slice of bread and you bring it to the lab and measure the iodine content in there, the labeling is not predictive. So you can't say commercial products that, that are not made with iodized dough conditioners are low in iodine. And it's not even, it's not even a gluten issue. Even gluten-free commercial products can have issues that way. Sneaky, sneaky, sneaky. Some very last quick questions. It's not a long protocol for the initial first phase of your diet. How often do they need to be checking their thyroid levels during that? I would encourage to do so within the first month. And if, there is, if there's ever a lot of change showing up, then to repeat in a month. If it's stable, give it two months. You know, it's the same thing. The more, the more it's changing, the more closely you want to monitor it. But as if it is changing rapidly, then yeah, you want to check that monthly and speak with your prescriber and make adjustments that are appropriate. Okay. And then last thing. So I did get my iodine levels tested and to test your iodine, it's urinary. I'd sent them over to you, but mine was the total volume was 2450. The iodine 24-hour urine was 162. Creatinine was 0.71. And you had told me that that means I fell. I think I was like, was I high or? You were high. And what happens, what happens is that urinary iodine by itself, it is a very good tool for a population's iodine status for like 500 or more people. But there's so much personal variation that it's not meaningful for an individual status. There was actually a big paper that just came out showing that if a given person tests themselves 10 times, they can be within 20% accuracy, which is pretty abysmal. If you test yourself 300 or more times, you can be within 90 or 95% accuracy. But by calibrating it based upon your creatinine, you can see how active your kidneys were in that moment and you can get a better sense. So you can't really tell someone's nutritional status but you can tell, I talked before about their iodine, whether they're at a positive balance or gaining it or a negative balance or getting rid of it, or they're holding steady. You can tell which category someone in is in pretty accurately based on their urinary iodine to creatinine ratio. And once, once we factored yours in, and the funny thing is that before you factor it, urinary iodine might even say that it's low. But once you correct per creatinine, it can be completely different. And so, yeah, you, you, were, you were in that positive state of iodine balance based upon your level at that time. Well, so this is very relevant to me. So, (laughs) and and probably so many of my listeners. Well, thank you so much. This is absolutely wonderful. I've been dying to have this episode because basically every time people have been now even remotely mentioning anything about hypothyroidism or anything thyroid related, I'm like, go ahead and pre-order this book right now because you're definitely going to want to read it. So when this comes out, I, I bet the book will probably be out. So for listeners, I will put links to everything in the show notes. Definitely get the book. It dives deep into all of this. It has the actual plan to follow recipes. Like it's got you covered. Thank you so much, Dr. Christensen. I appreciate you so much. Oh yeah. That was something I wanted to say in the very beginning. One of the things I just really, really love about you is in the whole health world, there's so many different ideas and concepts and debates and arguments. And there's a lot of cherry picking and there's a lot of people trying to drive agendas because, or, or trying to, you know, skew data or interpret data to fit their preconceived ideas about whatever they, whatever their idea is. And you, I just, I so respect you because I always just get the sense that you are really looking at all the literature you are, you know, looking to see what it really says and you're not trying to fit any preconceived notions. I just 
I feel like you are so trustworthy. So thank you so much for everything that you're doing. Well, I just I just want your audience to know that you're you're one of my all-time favorite conversation partners. You know, we've had all these great email exchanges and great talks over the over the years now it's been, but but no, you're 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 bright, you understand these things, you're trying to figure it out and you're and, and I and I really appreciate you taking the time today for us to have a, a detailed conversation. It's it's fun to to go into it at the depth it deserves and not just hit the high points. And, you know, so, so thank you so much for that, for giving this to your audience and giving us the time. Well, thank you. I, I am so grateful. And I don't know if you remember this because it was so long ago now, but the last question that I always ask every guest at the very end, and it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is surrounding everything. So what is something that you're grateful for? I'm grateful for the ability to train well, <laughs> the ability to exercise well. I've not always had that. And I'm, I'm 52. I'm at really at the best health in my life and just really having a blast with that. So yeah, that, that's it. And I think that there's nothing, no single habit that has more broad benefits to our health than, than just that. It's just you know, movement, exercise, time outside. So, so yeah, thankful for that. That's wonderful. I love it. Do you have any other books in the works now? You know, I'm kind of toying with that. And actually, I should get your feedback on a couple of the ideas. <laughs> I do. I'm just debating. There's like three, four that I'm playing with. And yeah, I'll run that by you and get, get, your, get your input. Oh, my goodness. Oh, I'm excited. I'm excited. What links would you like to put out there for listeners? You mentioned something about you have a link for your free program, Invisible Iodine. Com. Yeah, it's a docu. It's a docu series. It's a series of of videos that just trains about this exact scenario and gives some more depth about what are these big outliers and how this has affected people and where they can find the the sources of it. So it's a great starting place for those that want to learn more about the concept. Perfect. Again, I'll put all the information in the show notes. This has been absolutely wonderful, and hopefully, you can come back for a third time in the future, maybe about that that magical third book that I'm really excited or third fourth fourth it would be your your fourth book it'd be my my seventh actually oh seventh seventh I guess I've read three of yours I'll have to read the other ones seventh oh my goodness <laughs> oh my goodness that's incredible all right well I will talk to you soon all right take care Melanie thank you bye Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.